We are at verse 46 of chapter 3. And as we have been doing, we are taking three verses at a time since that's the acrostic style of this chapter. So I'll read the verses as we begin. All our enemies have opened their mouth against us. Panic and pitfall have befallen us, devastation and destruction. My eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The first thing to notice about verse 46 is that we have read this line before. Now, those of you that have a cross-reference Bible may be able to pick that out very easily. But for the rest of you, I know you have total recall. Uh Uh-huh. I've underestimated you or overestimated you. If you turn back to chapter 2, verse 16, you will notice the phrase, all... Your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. The only change you'll observe is the pronoun you, second person in chapter 2, to third person in chapter 3, verse 46. Now, as we were speaking here of chapter 2, verse 16... Once again, total recall question. Do you recall whose voice we were listening to there in that 16th verse of chapter 2? That is Jeremiah's voice, the voice of the poet prophet. The dual voices of that second chapter merging or beginning to interface into one voice, which is the one voice we have here in the third chapter, the voice of the suffering man. So who is he addressing here? Who is the poet addressing with the our and us here? Correct. And including the Lady Jerusalem, the personified voice in the city together, with him. So he is identifying once again, as he's been doing throughout this third chapter, with the suffering city of chapter 2, verse 16. The suffering man of chapter 3, 46, personally assumes the role of the city in chapter 2, verse 16. He identifies himself with the open mouth scorn of the enemies of the people of God in the city of God. He unites himself to the hissing and mocking which they endure. Notice, our enemies open their mouths against us, you and me, us together, us as one, us as bonded in the same Affliction, I in you, you in me. 
and marvel once more at the vicarious role of our suffering man. He takes to himself the reproach hurled against the people of God, those people who belong to the city of God. Their enemies are at enmity with him. Now, in verse 47, the phrase panic and pitfall may also be translated terror and pitfall. The Hebrew phrase occurs once more in Jeremiah 48, verse 43, where terror and pitfall overcome the Moabites, the historic enemies of Israel and Judah. The phrase also occurs one more time in in Isaiah chapter 24, verse 17, where it accompanies the cosmic judgment of God upon the inhabitants of the whole earth in in an apocalyptic cataclysm. The Lord God himself uses terror or panic to confound and defeat the enemies of Israel. In Exodus 15, verse 16, he uses it to defeat the Egyptians. In 2 Chronicles 17, 10 and 20, 23, he uses it to confound the foreign nations around Judah in the days of King Jehoshaphat. That panic and terror is now reversed. It is turned against Judah and Jerusalem as it was formerly turned against the enemies of Judah and Jerusalem. They are snared in the pits of their own devising and they are brought down by panic and terror or pitfall. They are brought down by the Lord to devastation and destruction. They are his enemies, and he brings down his enemies with panic, panic, and pitfall. Verse 48 reminds us of the weeping element in sorrow, tears of sadness in sorrow, Tears of weeping streaming down the face, a dolorous portrait of our suffering man as a man of sorrows. Indeed, we find the language, this language, in the prophet Jeremiah's biography. Jeremiah 9, verse 1. Oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears. Jeremiah 13, verse 17. My eyes weep bitterly and flow down with tears. Jeremiah 14, verse 17. Let my eyes flow down with tears night and day. And the recursion of this imagery has been observed already in the poetry of Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 16. For these things I weep, my eyes run down with water, 
Chapter 2, verse 11, my eyes fail because of tears. Chapter 2 of Lamentations, verse 18, O daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river. Even the liberal commentators, the liberal commentators see the mirror image. The mirror image of the suffering man in the personified city. One calls it an elision, a union between the people and the poet's language. But at the same time, that commentator refuses to call the poet Jeremiah. One other boldly declares that the speaker here is a, quote, personification of the people, unquote. And one radical liberal states that the man's flood of tears matches the poem's flood of words. That's quite good. Quite good. Even the liberals are forced to acknowledge the magnificence of the dramatic poetic art of the author of this book. By now, you know that I am persuaded Jeremiah is the only known dramatic poet whose artistry can account for the mirror poetic and biographical imagery in the two biblical books which bear his name. If it acts like Jeremiah, if it speaks like Jeremiah, if it weeps like Jeremiah, wherever it acts, speaks, and weeps, that's Jeremiah. QED, in my opinion. Finally, you will note the reversion in verse 48. The reversion to the first person singular pronoun, my. A shift from the explicitly corporate first person plural pronoun, we, in verses 40 to 47, now to the my and I pronoun. Implicit An explicit personal identification is present here, even as we have implicit and explicit corporate or united identification here. This text, by way of the use of personal pronouns, provides us with an interpersonal reciprocal identification. I in we and me in us, reciprocally mirrored, so that this third chapter at the centerpiece of this magnificent book is the key chapter of identification between the poet-sufferer and the suffering population and city. It is majestic in its theology as it is poignant in its structure and personality. Verses 49 to 51. My eyes pour down unceasingly without stopping until the Lord looks down and sees from heaven. My eyes bring pain to my soul because of all the daughters of my city.
We have commented on these verses previously when we discussed its reciprocal unit, the letter F, verses 16 to 18 on your outline. Here, the letter F prime reverses the chiastic fashion of the soul and Lord sequence of F to Lord and soul here in F prime. The suffering man whose soul has been rejected in the former unit, verse 17, mirrors that existential grief in this unit as pain pierces his soul in grief, verse 51. But F prime here also has its own structure and symmetry. As you scan the three verses, 49 to 51, what does your eye observe? What do you pick out? Do you see any recursions? Any duplications? Very good. My eyes in verse 49 and 51. The Hebrew for my eyes is actually one word in the Hebrew language. It stands first in both of those verses as the New American Standard Version translates it first. So, in fact, there's a framing bracket here. A small, what you might say, initial and closing inclusio between 49 and 51. But what structure do you see for all three verses? If you put 49 and 51 with 50, what do you have? You have a sandwich device. Verse 50 sandwiched between verses 49 and 51. And what jumps out at you in verse 50? The Lord. Very good. Exactly right. In the midst of our weeping, suffering man's sorrow, the Lord. In the midst of his eyes flowing down with tears of genuine and sincere existential sorrow, the Lord. The Lord at the center of his weeping. Tears unceasing, bracketed with tears soul-piercing, and the Lord from heaven at the center of it all. You will not endure suffering any other way. You will not. The Lord must be at the center. Your union must be with him and not with your suffering per se. And so you will cry out to the Lord, even as Jeremiah cries out to the Lord even as the eschatological Jeremiah cried out to the Lord. It is from heaven that God looks down and sees. He sees the tears of his suffering servant. He beholds the pain of sorrow that pierces his soul. The Lord of heaven looks down. His eyes bow down to the eyes of his servant. His gaze takes in the anguish and grief of his afflicted servant. And in his eyes, 
taken into his gaze. The Lord joins his life from heaven to the life of his suffering servant. From heaven looking down to join, to identify with a life downcast. So that from that union, that suffering life may be drawn up, up, upwards to heaven, up, up, upwards to the central figure in this drama, up, upwards to heaven and heaven's Lord. And from those uplifted eyes, those eyes joined to heaven's Lord, Peace, shalom, peace restored, peace restored, verse 17, reversed. Verse 17, I have been rejected from peace, reversed. In verse 50, the Lord has looked down from heaven and given me peace even in the midst of my suffering as he draws me up into the place where there is no more suffering. What is the source of the pain which pierces his soul and causes his tears to roll? It is what has happened to the daughters of my city. Two things to note about that phrase. First, it is a phrase that occurs nowhere else in the Old Testament. Completely unique to Lamentations, completely unique to Jeremiah's corpus. Nowhere else do we find that phrase. Second, he calls Jerusalem my city. The suffering man takes ownership of the city of God. He joins the city to himself as in what has been experienced by her, has pained, has pierced him as well. He and she are one, one in suffering, one in affliction, one in pain and sorrow. They are joined, united in that sorrow and lamentation. Now, why are his eyes, his soul, pained? Turn over to chapter 5, verse 11. Lamentations, chapter 5, verse 11. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the city of Judah. The women of Zion were raped. That would bring any empathetic observer to tears. Tears of anguish and sorrow as our suffering man demonstrates here. He identifies with their suffering. He weeps with those who weep. But the women of Jerusalem were also enslaved. They were enslaved by the Babylonians as they were raped by the Babylonians. They were subjected to bondage in exile as they were prostituted for purposes of lust. More cause for tears of anguish. 
and how many of the girls and women of Zion were killed, murdered in the Babylonian invasion. A great many, a great many indeed, my eyes run down, pour forth tears unceasingly. Our suffering man grieves over the pain caused to women. Our suffering man grieves over the pain caused to women. Pain to women which arises from brutal rape, abusive dominance, ungodly subjection and bondage, base hatred and even murder. For these, our suffering servant weeps and pleads, Come unto me. Come unto me, and I will wipe away all your tears. I will restore your ravished integrity and make you whole. I will. I will set you free from abuse and bondage. Submission, which is the tyranny of hell, not the liberty and freedom of heaven. I will grant you the liberty of heaven and not the tyranny of hell. I will raise you up to new life, as it were, life from the dead. Indeed, come unto me, come unto me, says the eschatological suffering servant from the Lord, and let me bear your sorrow. Don't turn it in on yourself. Don't make it a royal pity party. Take your sorrow and place it upon me, says Jesus, and I will care for you. I will make you whole. I will restore you. I will release you. I will grant you perfect freedom and bondage. In me, says the Lord Jesus. Come to me, broken, scarred, abused, dominated, subjugated women. Come to me, says the Lord Jesus. And Jeremiah feels the same. Verses 52 to 54. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They have silenced me in the pit and have placed a stone on me. Waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. Now your outline to have before you shows no explicit verbal duplication between these verses of E prime with the verses of the unit E, verses 13 to 15. That is true. There is no Hebrew verbal duplication in these six verses, 13 to 15, 52 to 54. However, there is a thematic motif common to both units. It occurs in verse 13, and then here in verse 52. 
our man of affliction is a target. He is a target of arrows in verse 13, which have pierced him. He is a target like a bird of prey here in verse 52. There is a thematic commonality about the E, E prime unit. Our suffering man is like a hunted man. Not only do the daughters of Zion suffer, our suffering man is joined to their experience as we have repeatedly emphasized by way of the identification motif of the two voices of the book of Lamentations. Birds. In the Old Testament era, birds were hunted with sticks, with slings, with snares, or they were simply shot with arrows, as the the psalmist in Psalm 11, verses 1 and 2 indicates. One female commentator on this section has suggested a series of images of a victim in distress in this unit. A helpless bird, verse 52. A helpless animal, verse 53. A drowning victim, verse 54. That series of observations on the part of that female interpreter is quite remarkable. It is, in fact, intriguing. It is a descending sequence of a vulnerable victim. Bird, animal, drowning human. For a moment, we want to focus on the existential experience of our poet, as it reprises the existential experience of our prophet Jeremiah, especially from verse 53. The prophet Jeremiah was cast down into a pit-like cistern. The death sentence pronounced upon him is found in Jeremiah 38, verse 4, and the cistern into which he was cast and from which he was rescued by the Ethiopian Ebed-Melech is detailed in that same 38th chapter of the book of the prophet, verses 6 to 13. And all this sorrow, because Jeremiah declared the word of the Lord to the nation of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Not a little ink has been spilt on whether verse 53 indicates Jeremiah was pelted with stones through the opening of the pit, or whether, like Daniel in chapter 6, verse 17, the opening to the pit into which he was cast was sealed by a large stone. The New American Standard notes the options with a marginal comment. The injustice and horror are plain on either reading, on either interpretation. And, of course, that is the theological point. But the stone over the entrance, the stone over the entrance 
would add yet another aspect of terror to the event. The victim would be cast into near total darkness. Darkness and slow starvation. Or darkness and gradual sinking into the mire of the cistern pit until the victim suffocated. The water imagery of verse 54 is also consistent with a cistern pit as Jeremiah's biography in Jeremiah chapter 38 indicates. In fact, we may have here a retrospective reflection of Jeremiah on his experience in the cistern with personal details in these verses which are not found there in Jeremiah chapter 38. That is to say, Lamentations 3, 53, and 54 are epexegetical of Jeremiah 38, verses 6 to 13. Or as we could say in classic Reformed hermeneutics, this scripture interprets that scripture. And this scripture gives a larger understanding of what Jeremiah suffered in that cistern pit, potentially total darkness and near suffocation. Verses 55 to 57. I called on thy name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit, Thou hast heard my voice. Do not hide thine ear from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. Thou didst draw near when I called on thee. Thou didst say, do not fear. Let's begin these three verses with the framing device. The framing device in this unit. You do see it as you scan the text. The word call in verse 55 and verse 57. Exact same Hebrew word. Is this narrative biographical poetry or narrative plangent poetry? Or is it both? It is, in fact, both. Jeremiah was cast down into a pit, a cistern pit, as we have remarked on Jeremiah 38. From out of the depths of that pit, he called on the name of the Lord Yahweh, perhaps echoing the psalm, De Profundis, out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord Yahweh, Psalm 130, verse 1. I mentioned De Profundis, that is the Latin of that Psalm 130, the first words of Psalm 130, verse 1, are de profundis, out of the depths. Something profound is deep. And out of the depths from which he cried, the Lord Yahweh heard the voice of Jeremiah, verse 56 of Lamentations 3, and brought him up out of the pit of destruction 
out of the miry clay, echoing Psalm 40, verse 2. Anticipating verse 58, the Lord redeemed his life, echoing Psalm 103, verses 1 and 4. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who redeems your life from the pit. It is perfectly possible and plausible that Jeremiah is recalling his own personal odyssey by which he was conformed to the suffering of his people prior to the devastation of Judah and Jerusalem, a recollection now dramatically rehearsed in the poetry of this book where he records the pathos of those personal and corporate events poignantly, tragically, and the union of his story with their story. But there are two other duplications. There are two other duplications in this unit. Do you see them as you scan the text? You will notice the negative not, which is doubled. But what is the form of its occurrence? You will notice it is enclosed by direct quotation marks, which means direct discourse. So who speaks in verse 56? It is the poet-prophet Jeremiah. Who speaks in verse 57? It is God the Lord. The unfolding sequence, the narrative biographical sequence unfolds from calling on the name of the Lord, verse 55, to the Lord hearing that cry for help, verse 56, to the Lord drawing near with assurance, be not afraid, verse 57, to the Lord redeeming the poet's life, verse 58. Such a narrative sequence of encouragement to all the suffering people of God yesterday, today, and forever, is strung together in this marvelous concatenation. For this, too, was the biographical narrative of the eschatological suffering man of sorrows. He called on the name of the Lord from the lowest pit. The Lord heard his cry from the depths of Sheol. The Lord drew near to his suffering servant, placing the words, Fear not, on that very servant's lips, when the Lord God redeemed the life of his servant's son by raising him up from the dead. Do not be afraid, he said. I have turned your sorrow into rejoicing, and I have taken your death and reversed it. With life. There is a narrative more glorious than Jeremiah's, and a reversals of sorrow and suffering more wondrous than Jeremiah's lamentations. But how the protological Jeremiah prepares us for that eschatological Jeremiah. How indeed, as we are drawn down into the depths of his gracious and merciful suffering on our behalf, even in these pages written nearly 600 years 
beforehand. How God virtually anticipates and embodies the one in the other. Is it too much to say how God, as it were, incarnates the one in the other? So that Jeremiah projects the eschatological Jeremiah even as he lives his protological life. Verses 58 to 60. O Lord, thou hast pled my soul's cause, thou hast redeemed my life. O Lord, thou hast seen my oppression, judge my case. Thou hast seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. We notice the duplicates in this unit. Two of them obvious in the English translation, thou hast seen. The Hebrew verb duplicated as the first word in verses 59 and 60, rawita, those initial verbs beginning with the Hebrew letter resh, which you see on the left side of the C prime on your outline, the letter which looks like an upside down hockey stick and has the R sound, rish, or R in Hebrew. The other duplicate is the double all in verse 60. But there is yet a further duplicate in verse 59, which is not visible in your English translation, but quite clear in the original Hebrew text. Judge my case is literally in Hebrew, Judge my judgment. With the word for judge, shapat in Hebrew, doubled. Now there are other words in the Hebrew to comment in this unit. Beginning with verse 58 and the phrase, my life. In Hebrew, haye. Haye. Which is related to the Hebrew chant, lachayim. Lachayim, which means what? To life. life. I trust you're familiar with the singing of that chant from the marvelous movie Fiddler on the Roof. And if you are not, nor have you ever enjoyed Fiddler on the Roof, then I encourage you to find it, check it out, and watch it. It is a terrific film. Funny, joyful, and sad all at once. But when they do L'chaim, they do it exuberantly. And here you see that root word in the biblical Hebrew text. The Hebrew word for redeem in verse 58 is goel. Goel. Any Goel figure in the Old Testament familiar to you? You're not saying loud enough. I can't hear you. Speak up. Don't be bashful. Boaz. In the book of Ruth. Yes. Boaz is the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. 
for whom Ruth and Naomi are seeking aid. So, that's a powerful word. It has redemptive overtones, which goes back into the life experience of Ruth and Boaz and other Old Testament figures. Our suffering man here begs the Lord Adonai to be his advocate, to plead his cause, even as he declares that the Lord Adonai has redeemed his life. To redeem means to liberate, to save, to ransom, to buy back. Isaiah 41, verse 14. I will help you, declares the Lord. Even your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 47, verse 4. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 49, verse 26. I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Isaiah 54, verse 5, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the Lord God of all the earth. And Isaiah 54, verse 8, with everlasting loving kindness, with everlasting loving kindness, Olam Hased, Olam Hased, with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Redemption includes Olam. That's said. Redemption is the suffering man having a Savior to champion, to advocate for his soul. Redemption is a suffering man having a Savior to deliver, to liberate, to set him free from oppression, to redeem him from suffering. Redemption is the suffering man having a savior to cancel all the schemes of vengeance launched against him, to annul the enmity of retaliation advanced against him. A redeemer, a savior, to redeem and save from the enemy, from the suffering oppression of the enemy. We are once more reminded of the interface between the poetic narrative of the suffering man here in Lamentations 3 and the narrative of the suffering prophet in the book of Jeremiah. Plead my soul's cause, here in verse 58. Jeremiah 11:20. To thee, O Lord, have I committed my cause. Jeremiah 20, verse 12. To thee, O Lord, have I set forth my cause. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. I would plead my case with thee, O Lord, because thou art righteous. As the prophet Jeremiah pleads his case and cause to the Lord, so the poet Jeremiah does likewise. Narrative, biographical, mirror, Lamentations author, mirroring Jeremiah author. The poet, in verse 59 here, asks God to judge his case. Jeremiah 11:19 and 20. 
Lord, I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Did you hear that language from the prophet Jeremiah? Did you hear that language? Lord, I was as a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And I did not know that they had devised plots against me, O Lord, you who judge righteously. And then verse 60. The vengeance of the schemes of the suffering man's oppressors interface with the prophet's plea in Jeremiah 11.20. Let me see thy vengeance on them, namely those from Jeremiah's hometown of Anathoth, who sought to kill him in Jeremiah 11, verse 21. And Jeremiah 20, verse 12, again, Let me see thy vengeance on them, Lord of hosts, namely Pasher, the false priest of God, who had Jeremiah beaten and put in stocks in public humiliation. Jeremiah 11, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 46, verse 10, reveals that the day of the Lord will be a day of vengeance on which he will avenge himself on all his foes. And those foes include the Babylonians as well as the treacherous leaders of the rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, namely King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah who provoked the third and final siege of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. when he rebelled against the king of Babylon as 2 Kings 24.20 and 2 Chronicles 36.13 indicate. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Our suffering man and the inspired prophet stand in God's place, demanding holy vengeance in retaliation for depraved vengeance. We've come to the time for a break. We've come to verses 61 to 63. Thou hast heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. The lips of my assailants and their whispering are against me all day long. Look on their sitting and their rising, I am their mocking song. Now you will notice that there is a connection between see and hear in verses 60 and 61. Our suffering man appeals to the Lord to behold the oppression visited upon him but also to hear the reproaches heaped upon him. And you will further notice the duplicate phrases, which are exact in the Hebrew, all their schemes. All their schemes against me, O Lord, hear and see. All of their schemes hear and see with which they reproach me. What more specifically does our narrator want the Lord to hear? 
the words spewing from his antagonist's lips, verse 62. Their secretive whispers and murmurs, also verse 62. Their songs of mockery and taunting, verse 63. Hear and see, O Lord. Listen and look, O Lord. We are reminded once more that our man of affliction here is the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 20, verse 8, the prophet in his book declares that the word of the Lord, which he proclaimed, brought reproach and derision all day long. Notice that very same phrase, all day long, in verse 62 of Lamentations 3. What is biographically recorded here is similarly biographically recorded there. The symmetry of narrative biography mirrored in both books. And it is interesting that in this third chapter, a great deal of that narrative biography from the book of the prophet Jeremiah is explicit. Explicit in the language, explicit explicit in the vocabulary, explicit in the phrases, explicit in the imagery. It's almost in this largest chapter of Lamentations, the poet Jeremiah draws his largest attention to the prophet Jeremiah in the book that bears his name. The mirror images are multiform, multiform. The mirror image between the prophet and the poet, the mirror image between the prophet and the city, the mirror image between the suffering man and Lady Jerusalem. Mirrors, 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 echoes, echoes, symmetries, symmetries, reduplications. There is profound imagery. There's profound rhetoric. There's profound literary drama here as we move between the two books and between the two voices of these two books. The Mocking Song. Verse 63, the Mocking Song. It repeats the same phrase in verse 14 of this chapter. I have become a laughingstock, their mocking song all the day. This is also an image in Jeremiah chapter 20. In verse 7 of Jeremiah 20, the prophet writes, I become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. It's almost a direct quotation or a direct uh, reflection. Mark then the abuse. It's verbal abuse. The verbal abuse endured by this suffering man, suffering prophet. He is jeered, he is condemned, berated, scorned, ridiculed, degraded by the lips, the mouths, the tongues of those at enmity against him. Was it any less so for the eschatological Jeremiah, who was the eschatological man of sorrows, and the eschatological bearer of mockery 
derision, scorn, reproach, taunting, ridicule, and contempt. Was it any less so for our Lord Jesus Christ, magnificent Son of God, humiliated by the lips, the mouths, the tongues of those at enmity against him? Surely it was more so. Surely it was more so that God the Son, God the ontological Son, would bear these reproaches by the mouths of his enemies, that the very God of very God would endure such contempt and hatred in taking the reproaches due to his sons and daughters. All the enmity directed against them fell upon him. All that vicious derision and hateful rhetoric directed against them landed on him. Him, the very son of the living God, the very God of very God. And he took it. He bore it. He carried it and spit upon his sacred face in spiny thorns pressed down upon his holy head in flesh-shredding lashes cut into his spotless back. And what would we say of the nails pounded through his hands and feet, every blow struck with hatred, every blow struck with contempt, every blow pounded with scorn and degradation and murderous enmity. We are joined with him as Jeremiah the prophet and Jeremiah the poet are joined with him. An indissoluble bond, an indelible union, an identification of his reproach in us, of his mockery in us, of his taunting, scorning, abusing, degrading, even his murdering in us. In us. For this is what it means to fill up the measure of Christ's suffering. This is what it means to fill up the measure of Christ's suffering. Colossians 1.24 Jeremiah anticipated it. Jesus Christ accomplished it once and for all. We, we are pressed down into it through Christ Jesus, together with Jeremiah and Paul and a host of believers more numerous than the sand on the seashore. These are those who have come out of great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those who have come out of great tribulation a host innumerable out of every race and tribe and tongue under heaven. Do you think we are exempt? Do you think we are exempt? Verses 
Thou wilt recompense them, O Lord. According to the work of their hands, thou wilt give them hardness of heart. Thy curse will be on them. Thou wilt purge them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. We have reached the end of this majestic keystone chapter of our book of sorrows. That end or closure has actually been signaled by the poet in verse 63. There he uses the Hebrew pronoun I, ani in Hebrew. There is only one other place in this chapter where he uses that Hebrew pronoun. Do you know where it is? Let me give you a clue. Here, it is at the point of closure. Where else would you look for it? What's the opposite of closure? All you photography fans, what's the opposite of closure? Aperture. Aperture. Very good. Will you look at the aperture of the chapter or the opening or beginning of this chapter. And what do you see? I, I am the man who suffers or bears affliction. The Hebrew pronoun ani or I in English occurs in that opening line. It is the only place in this chapter where that pronoun occurs. The opening verse and the near closing section in verse 63. Thus... At the opening or aperture of Lamentations 3 and at the closing or closure of Lamentations 3, we have a singular mirror reflection of the one voice. The one voice whom we have heard throughout the chapter. The I am voice of the poet, prophet, the protological Jeremiah. He brackets his vicarious litany of unfolding sorrows with his personal pronouns. I am, I am. And he folds in between the inclusio of that mirror pronomial bracket. In between the inclusio, he folds in the depths of his sorrow, the depths of his grief, the pangs of his affliction, his humiliation, depths of his profound, de profundis humiliation. One other man of sorrows acquainted with grief would reprise this mirror of affliction, but he would do so in order to redeem affliction with affliction never again, to redeem sorrow with everlasting joy, to redeem grief with never-ending praise and delight, to wipe away all tears as his eyes weep no more, but are bright and radiant with eternal peace, eternal health, eternal life. The recompense requested here in verse 64 is part of a long-designed and predestined drama of judgment. Judgment and retribution upon the wicked who wickedly hate God and his Christ and his people. They shall come at last to a day of reckoning established by a just and holy God who will bring every word 
and thought and evil deed before his all-holy, all-righteous, all-fair and just face. Injustice will be judged and punished eternally. Wicked evil will be judged and punished eternally. Every sinful word and thought and deed will be judged and punished eternally for the impenitent wicked, the impenitent wicked who hate God and his Christ and his elect people. What our suffering man requests here is nothing less than what the eschatological suffering son of man declares will occur in Matthew 25. A cosmic, universal judgment of evil at the throne of glory. The last word in this unit, the last word in verse 66, the final word in this chapter is the Hebrew text, Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, binds verse 64 with verse 66. He frames the narrative as he frames the whole creation from its protological beginning to its eschatological end. For his creating all things under heaven to his uncreating all things under heaven is the destruction of Jerusalem, 586 B.C., therefore a microcosm. Is the destruction of Jerusalem, 586 B.C., a microcosm of the destruction of the entire created order on that last day? Have we, in fact, already seen a preview of the judgment of the great white throne in the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah in 586 B.C., a destruction that was repeated once again in duplicate fashion. There's that duplication and symmetry again in 70 A.D. I do not answer the question. I raise the question for your pondering. Randy, you had your hand up a little bit ago. Thank you for your patience. Does the Hebrew language allow for an equivocation between singular and plural in certain forms? For what between singular and plural? An equivocation between the two. Yes, it can. That's why we keep seeing a switch in the different versions. Oftentimes you use a singular the other version uses a plural and vice versa throughout our study of this book. Yes. There's this mirror-like pattern. See, you've got plural and singular pronouns which are equal to it. For, the, for instance, the we and our pronoun plural is the reciprocal of the I, my plural in the singular. I'm not so much talking about the uh, people, but things like taunts in the song. You said song, and our version says taunts, so it's plural. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have to look at each right. occasion right. which you... But yes, there is this fluidity. Okay. There's no bad question. Any question gets an answer 
insofar as I can give it. Say that to me, I'll never stop asking. <laughs> That's all right. I will know when to tell you to be quiet. Any other questions? Yes. Was there anybody else in Jerusalem who was pleading like Jeremiah his case or their case? Not that we know of. Um, Gedaliah, who is named the governor after the city is destroyed, makes a case of his own, but he foolishly does not stand on the integrity or, let me put it this way, he does not stand on the information which is given to him about the treachery of those that want to kill him. And in fact, they assassinate him. So uh, I, I don't want to say that there's no one else in Jerusalem or Judah that uh, believes like Jeremiah. I don't think there's anyone else that's as profoundly a believer as Jeremiah. But I'm not prepared to say that there is no one else uh, who doesn't believe what he said and is spared uh, either by grace or uh, in grace, spared in grace or spared in life as Jeremiah was uh, when the city is put to the torch. There's always a small remnant. There's even a remnant that goes into exile. So was there a remnant that was there after the destruction that remained in the land? It's an interesting question. Scott, did you have a comment on that? Yeah, no, I that. I just said okay, okay. So is that answering what you were asking? Yeah, it's hard to know that for sure because there's not enough in the text, in the passages which reflect upon what the consequences of of the destruction were. Most of it's focused on the exile and where they went went off into Babylon, book of Daniel, Ezekiel, and so on. Haggai, Zechariah. Scott, Scott Scott first. You already had a term. Scott first. Related to her question. Oh, you're related to her question. You're trying to piggyback on that question. Maybe she she was asking... He's yielding you the floor. Very good. Some of the other minor prophets may be related to this period of time. Maybe that was. Yeah, I mentioned I mentioned Haggai, Zechariah. Oh, okay. I they you. they are related to this time. Actually, the time in terms of return. Okay, Habakkuk and Zephaniah, but both of those prophets don't answer this question either because Habakkuk and Zephaniah are contemporaries of Jeremiah. Okay. So, and Ezekiel, of course, is a contemporary. So is Daniel, but Daniel's out of the country. And Ezekiel's out of the country, although he's looking back upon the country and receives a great deal of revelation about what's going on inside Jerusalem until before the destruction. So when you put all that package together, you, you don't have a lot of information about people in Judah or Jerusalem after the city was raised. You have that story in Jeremiah in chapter 40 and following, about what happened to Gedaliah and Jeremiah being forced down into Egypt. It's an interesting question. Uh, I, I just, I don't, to my knowledge, I don't have enough information to answer it from the text or the text plural. Scott? Uh, 
And you may have commented on this. I may have missed it. But since you mentioned verse 50 as the center of verses 49 and 51, and there you've got the Lord looking down from the heavens, you would think in grace. Then you have verse 66 where he's going to destroy them from the heavens, O Lord. Do you see that as a contrasting eschatological thing or anything? I didn't even notice that. Good for you to pick up on that. Yeah, I think possibly a contrast. Because as he's looking down in verse 50, I would say that's attached to verse 58, O Lord, thou hast redeemed my life. Whereas here, he's looking down in destruction or eschatological judgment. So I had to say that the one has an eschatological vector of redemption attached to it implicitly, if not explicitly, when you join Lord there with Lord down in 58. But there in 66, it's different. It's the vengeance of God. Yeah, but thanks for noticing that. You see, I don't see everything. You see, I don't see. Sorry about the Hebrew duplication. Go ahead, David. When the Lord executes vengeance, how does he divide up between executing vengeance eternally and temporally? There are some that are very wicked and they will, of course, the things that they've done to believers that have been accepted are going to be avenged eternally, but sometimes it seems that it happens temporarily, happens in your life. Now, my grandfather used to say that uh, God judges individuals spiritually and eternally. He judges nations and those that make up those nations temporally. So he's making a distinction about the fact that it's individuals that stand before Christ in Matthew 28, 25, rather, in the great white throne. It's not nations as entities. Those nations receive their judgment and retribution in this world. Babylon falls. Assyria falls. Persia falls. Rome falls. Germany falls. And so on. Any other questions or comments? Well, let's close in prayer. Next week, as I mentioned, we'll take a look at the fourth chapter. Our Father, we have been privileged to think upon, to identify with, to be pressed down into the marvelous suffering man, suffering servant, suffering son of man, your son, our precious Savior. Mocked and taunted, derided and abused, reproached and crucified, dead in a tomb of darkness, 
hated the object of enmity, even from the powers of darkness. And yet, in his marvelous, consubstantial nature, coessential with you and the Holy Spirit, he was able to endure, to carry, to bear all, and to conquer all. How we bless you that in these last days, we know that suffering has an eternal opposite. That weeping has an eternal opposite. That spite and hate have an eternal opposite. And that opposite is in the person of your son and of the city of the new Jerusalem your everlasting dwelling place. We thank you for opening the gates of that arena to us by faith. Thank you for the grace of your Son who sits enthroned there. We thank you for the peace, even now, of that arena that passes all understanding shed abroad in our hearts. Let us be firm in faith, O Lord, by your grace and mercy. Let us be constant in devotion and love to our Lord Jesus. Let us be steadfast in our identification with him as he steadfastly identified with us. So that even if we must suffer, we realize we are but filling up the measure of our Lord Jesus' own suffering. And so we will bless and praise you through the name of the eschatological suffering man, Jesus our Lord. Amen.